0: The reading this morning is from Romans 3. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, verses 25 and 26. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead, and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. There's a word of knowledge uh, here. Uh, Again, if you're visiting this morning, we believe that God speaks to us primarily through his word but also it can come through dreams, visions, and words or senses. Uh, and so we do not despise words and knowledge, but we discern all things. Uh, someone with chronic fatigue uh, may be here this morning, or perhaps listening online. I feel that God wants to heal you. Are you willing to allow him to enter the deep recesses of your heart, to heal the woundings and the memories? As you forgive those who have hurt and betrayed you, God will set you free. Before we start this message, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we've sung how powerful your name is. And Lord, we believe uh, that we recognise the cultural moment we live in and with the decline of Christianity in the West and in New Zealand. But we believe here is a church that loves your word, that you, you are going to build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. That in the image there in Daniel, uh, your kingdom will outlast every other kingdom. And we believe that we here as brothers and sisters are children of the living God, a part of this eternal kingdom. Your word and your values are different from the values of the world around us, but our allegiance is to you, the one, the true, the living God. And so Lord, in this time, as we come and gather around your word, we ask in Jesus' name, whether perhaps someone is listening to this on podcast around the world listening to this uh, on the YouTube channel or is here in listening that that we whatever space we're in whatever time we're in we ask in the name of Jesus that you would speak that your words would come alive this morning we ask that you would do what only you can do you would you would quicken the word lord we acknowledge that so often our minds are distracted We're worried by many things. We find it difficult to focus on what you're saying. And at times also, Lord, the communicators who bring your word do so with various imperfections. And so, Lord, despite this, we ask that you would come by your spirit and pierce hearts with your word. Bring repentance, bring encouragement, build your church. In Jesus' name, amen. And I'm going to read the passage again, uh, that's the NLT version, we're going to read it in the NIV. The NLT is excellent, uh, and it, it brings, it translates some of the, the, the Greek quite well, uh, but this one here uh, also um, uh, gives uh, uh, a, a little more of the Greek here. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So, welcome to our ongoing series on Romans. This morning, we're looking at one of the key New Testament texts about the cross. And we're looking at one of the key things that Jesus was accomplishing for us on the cross. The technical term is penal, substitution, atonement. When I first heard that word, I just disliked it just automatically because it had the word penal in it. But penal means punishment, substitution. That Jesus uh, bore the punishment that we, we deserved on the cross. That Jesus Christ took the full punishment that we deserved for our sins as a substitute in our place. Now, there's lots of amazing things that Jesus was doing on the cross. He was our healer. He had victory over the powers of darkness. Lots of amazing things. But one key, and I would probably say the key thing that he was doing, was bearing the full punishment that we deserved as a substitute in our place. We're going to go watch a video. um, And uh, do I push the play or is it going to? You're going to do it. Fantastic.
1: In 2007, after years of irresponsible lending practices and unethical mortgage trading had inflated it to unsustainable levels, the U.S. housing market finally collapsed. Global stock markets fell and millions of people lost their jobs in an economic disaster that cost the world trillions of dollars. The causes of the 2007 economic crisis are complex, but many attribute it, at least in part, to fraud and corruption among the financial institutions that raided and sold mortgage bonds. Because of the unethical practices of a few large rich banks, in other words, a lot of ordinary people lost their homes and their livelihoods. Something that has enraged many people since, however, is the fact that none of the CEOs of the financial institutions seemingly responsible for this situation were ever brought to justice for their part in the mess. Instead, when the crisis threatened to bankrupt many of these banks, the US government provided a financial bailout, essentially giving them billions of taxpayer dollars to keep them afloat. To the extent that this is the exact opposite of what happened on the cross—the way these banks were forgiven their debt to society without any recourse to justice—it provides us a helpful way for thinking about an aspect of the atonement that is sometimes difficult for us to wrap our heads around. It's something called penal substitution. Penal substitution refers to the idea that Christ satisfied the demands of God's justice by taking on to himself the punishment for our sins in our place on the cross. If it's misunderstood, penal substitution can leave the impression that the Christian God is some petty, vengeful deity who can't be satisfied until someone suffers to appease His wrath, which is in flat contradiction to the Bible's own description of God, that He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Penal substitution starts to make perfect sense, however, if we think about it in relation to the 2007 financial crisis. The US government's decision to bail out the banks, to forgive them their debt, was based on the assumption that the banks themselves were too big to fail, and, if they went under, the whole economy would collapse. In their view, forgiveness was necessary. But what leaves us with a justifiably sour taste in our mouths is the travesty of justice here, that no one was held to account, and justice was not served. To grasp how this relates to the cross, we must first consider that, when He created the world, God was after a world where things like fairness and right relationships, harmony and wholeness, where all the things we think of when we think about justice, obtain. Human beings, of course, have not lived up to the Creator's intention for us. The global economic crisis of 2007 is only one of millions of examples of this we sin. And herein lies the dilemma. For us to be included in His plan for the creation, God must forgive us our sins. But if He were to forgive us without somehow satisfying the demands of justice, it would sort of be like a government that forgives the debt of a bunch of corrupt banks without just regard to the plight of the ordinary people hurt by them. From God's perspective, both undeserved forgiveness and genuine justice are necessary. And this is the dilemma that he resolves for us through the cross. Penal substitution is not about Jesus pacifying the rage of an angry heavenly father. It is about a loving God who, in the person of Jesus Christ, suffers all the consequences of our sin for us and in our place, so that God can forgive us with just regard for the severity of sin, and so that he can deal with sin in all its severity without excluding us from his plan for the creation. Like it says in one place, he made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we could become. The righteousness of God.
0: So this morning, uh, that that was relates from an American context, but uh, seven trillion dollars is an awful lot of money, and not a single banker was held to account. Imagine that seven trillion dollars. Uh, you can imagine a working class person stealing a few thousand dollars, they might go to jail, but steal steal seven trillion, and you get off the fine. And people felt that was unjust. Where's the justice? Uh, but we see in the cross the justice of God and the mercy of God. That there is a justice that takes place, but God Himself, in a sense, pays the seven trillion, and it's re- and and those who have stolen that can receive that forgiveness if they repent. So this morning I'm going to look at penal substitution, and what this morning I'm going to it's going to be a little less mesmerizing, perhaps. I'm not going to be wandering around so much. I'm going to be a little more grounded. There's going to be a few more biblical texts that come out, but I hope that. Uh, What's lacking in charisma will be made up with depth and clarity and will give a sense of the the total sense of this is a key part of the Christian belief. You'll see the breadth of scriptures. And then, after about 10 minutes of us going through the Bible, looking at penal substitution, I'm then going to do this. I'm going to look at some objections. Uh, including a couple of pastors who hate penal substitution, and then some quick replies to it. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about it, the sweep of Scripture, then some objections and some answers. That's what we're doing this morning. Are you ready, guys? You're, you're, you're buckled in and ready to go? Well, let's get underway. So the, the Bible says that humans, all humans have a universal problem. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. We see this from the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Only perfect obedience will satisfy God's justice. And we see that uh, Adam and Eve were severed from God for one sin. Now, God is a moral, just God. He has these laws. And when you sin, you are sinning against God and breaking his laws. Everyone who sins is breaking God's laws, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. So, to give an example of that, the well known story of King David. King David, he slept with one of his officers' wives. She got pregnant. He had a bit of a problem. And so, to deal with the problem, he kills the officer and then marries the girl. Problem solved, right? And then Nathan comes and says you know what? God's not very happy with the fact that you had an affair, and then you killed the guy to cover it up, all right? And now David, uh, in Psalm 51, this is what he says about it, all right? Uh, "'Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin.' For I recognize my rebellion and it haunts me day and night. Who's been up at night feeling haunted at stuff you've done in the past? Well, that's what's keeping David awake, what he had done. And he says this, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. What he's saying ultimately is that yes, he did sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. But ultimately, God is the moral just judge, and it was ultimately against this this holy God that he was sinning, and that God is not unjust in holding David to account. Sin deserves punishment because God is holy. Breaking the law is not merely an impersonal reality, for sin represents rebellion against God himself. So the Bible argues that among other characteristics, God is a just king. And that he will exact judgment, ultimately on judgment day. So if justice is a key part of God's character, how then is God's justice and his mercy going to work out when we all fall short of his standard? And this is where we see substitution come. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices, if you've ever read Leviticus, I know exciting reading, but if you read through it in your, in your yearly reading, which I do, you'll find again and again there is the laying of hands. So this poor little lamb or goat or animal has done nothing wrong. The person lays the hand on the animal, and that was signifying that all the shortcomings and screw-ups of the family was being transferred to this innocent little animal who then suffered a violent death. And it serves as a substitute for the worshiper. And this is what Hebrews 10, I'm just uh, getting a little excerpts here of it, is that they were a preview. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest Jesus offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. The entire Old Testament system was pointing to Jesus Christ. We see this in Isaiah 53. Here Jesus, the suffering servant, suffered death in the place of sinners. He was our substitute. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us are like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sin, sins of us all. So from Romans 1.18 all the way to Romans 3.20, we see... That all humans fall short of the glory of God, that we, or at least I, am a sinner deserving judgment, and since sin, uh, since we all sin and no one can keep the whole, or we all face judgment. But we also know that God is loving and merciful. How can we reconcile these two things? Well, this morning's passage says God presented Jesus as a as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. The sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in the past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in in this present time. That is, when Jesus died, he died for the sins of all those before him as well. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Now, the word there, sacrifice for sin, are you with me? Are you staying with me? Is a technical term that, that Paul uses, and I'm going to probably mispronounce it there, hysterion, which means mercy seat. So Jesus was the mercy seat. He was the, the core part of the atonement system. Or the other word, and it's a real long word, is propitiation. Who's heard of the word propitiation before? Yes, a few. What that means is he signifies that God's wrath was satisfied in the cross of Christ. And this follows the whole theme of Romans, Romans thought. So uh, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people. And then he says, storing up for yourselves in a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And then uh, it goes on, not just in Romans, but in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. A substitute, because it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So if you say, well, I disagree with this. I don't like Paul at all. Well, Jesus said, I believe this. All right. Uh, One more text from Paul. God made him who did not know sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the exchange. And Jesus said this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a Ransom. ransom. All right. And then in John's gospel, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what was the Lamb, was he talking of? Was it the Lamb of Isaiah 53? Was it the Lamb of the, of the Day of Atonement? Or was it the Old Testament sacrifice? I think it was all three. The Lamb. <laughs> he is the Lamb of the Old tes- Testament system. All right? And so we see this penal substitution is woven into the fabric of the New Testament. Isaiah 53 is quoted uh, by Peter he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The substitution. In the next chapter, he declares for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. This should, you know, if you believe, I guess it's offensive to those who think they're pretty good. But if you think your record's pretty sucking, your moral rec- record's not so great, this is great news. It's like the $7 trillion of debt. He's just forgiven it. You're set free. You're substituted. Free to go, like Barabbas. It's as good as it can get. All right, so now some misconceptions all right, about the cross. Some objections, some in the West today, not everyone is happy with the idea that Jesus Christ took the full punishment that we deserve for our sins as a substitute in our place. Now, I realize I'm going to be answering some questions. I'm answering the questions you never asked. I do get that. But sometimes, well, this is what often happens. I've seen people go to churches, they hear this stuff, and then they go off and they will go to another church, and they'll say, oh, and people will say these things, and you've never heard these particular uh, 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 arguments. You have, I have no idea. I just always believed this. So I'm giving some ideas of some of the criticisms that come in and then giving responses to it. The first objection, and this one really annoys me, is the claim that the early church did not teach this view of the cross, but it was invented in the Middle Ages by Anselm or some of the medievals. No! Have they not read the early church? I have. This is completely false. This was the first letter written after the end of the New Testament, it's all through the old church fathers. I'm not going to quote thousands of them, though, for you. We'd be here till, till three o'clock in the afternoon. But I'll quote a few. Because this is the first letter after the end of the New Testament, because of the love that he had for us, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us, and his flesh for our flesh, and his life for our life. The substitution. Right? And then this is another one, second century, and this is one of my favorite texts. I just... And In 2,000 years of church history, I haven't seen this text as of a person who's, just, who's lived in the Roman world, been out there, radically saved, and now the substitution of what Jesus And this is what is just overflowing with joy. It is mercy he took upon himself, our sins. He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the lawless, the guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else but in his righteousness could have covered our sins? In whom was it possible for us, the lawless and the ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone? Nothing else would pay it, right? Oh, the sweet exchange. Oh, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. All right, and then, so that was, and now, this is not just the theologians. This next quote, I want to choose one this morning. She's a, a lady. She died in about the third century, and it was the last words that she gave as she was dying. And as she was dying, she was talking to uh, uh, the, the priest was there, and these were the words that she said. You redeemed us from the curse and from sin, having become both on our behalf. You crushed the heads of the serpent who seized man in his jaws. Because of the abyss of our disobedience, you have opened up us a path to the resurrection, having broken down the gates of hell and reduced to impotence the one who had power over death. She recognized that Jesus became the curse, redeemed us from the curse and from the sin by becoming both for us. Now, the second objection to Jesus dying is God unjust punishing uh, his innocent son for the crimes of others. Now, there's lots of pastors. I've got Steve Chalk here. He's a British Baptist pastor. This is what he says. Penal substitution is tantamount to child abuse. A vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not committed. And this one is Brian Zand. He's a very famous pastor in America. I've discovered that most Christians are deeply relieved to learn that the forgiveness of our sins is not predicated upon God killing Jesus. Most people take it as a good news to learn that child sacrifice is not part of God's plan to save the world. Thank you, Brian, for that. Wonderful quote. So is is God a a, a terrible father punishing his son? Is that the case? Well, may I suggest no, right? Uh, Jesus is not the Father's heavenly whipping boy. No, I would argue that Jesus is the one that I have sinned against. Jesus to me is God. I believe that Jesus is an equal part of the Trinity, the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He willingly gave up everything and humbled himself to go to the cross. And if you don't want to take my words for it, why don't you take the words of Jesus? This is Jesus, right? Let's hear Jesus talk about this. The Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it. Yeah. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want and also to take it. Jesus wasn't a dupe. Jesus came to the earth for this purpose. He was not cosmic child abuse. It was God himself coming to the flesh to die for us, for the sins of many. And the last objection that comes up uh, well, there's others, but I was going to maybe the ones that I want to look at this morning because of time. Isn't wrath an unworthy characteristic to assign to a loving God? I mean, you know, I just want to say firstly that God's anger is very different to my anger, to my shame. Now, to my shame, I have sinned in my anger. There's been times that I've done things that I deeply regret. Who has sinned in your anger? And after you've said and done things, you've felt the remorse and shame of it, all right? That has been my thing. Well, with God, when God gets angry, it's always fitting, it's always just, and it's always pure. And I want to say this, I want you to say with me, if you believe in the wrath of God, you are saying that God sides with the marginalized, with the abused, with those who are suffering, Right? Because if you say that God is not angry, then you're saying that God is indifferent to the children who are abused, to the war crimes that take place. All right? So God's anger is against people abusing children, for example. It's not an opposition to his love, but it's an outworking, an overflowing of his love because God is love. So my son James, he was uh, at a school, I won't say which school, but it'd be easy enough to work out if you know our history. And he was at school, and in the middle of class time, uh, the the school was in all sorts of difficulties and had a government um, uh, trust and, and error reports and all these things, and there was difficulties there going on. But in the middle of class time, he was bullied while the teachers was there, including having his arm broken, it was like a, uh, a dog-eat-dog world. Imagine that. In class, with the teachers there, things going on, and James's arm was broken. And Catherine had to cart him all the way down to um, um, Christchurch uh, for fixed up. I have to say, I was pretty angry. I wanted to go in there to the bullies who were, who were destroying James's life, and I wanted justice, right? Now, am I, was I, well, here's the question, am I wrong to feel angry thoughts about that? when your children's getting abused and bullied? No. Now, now the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin, right? Now, so I could have done some things that would have been wrong. Where's that kid? I'll sort him out, right? Uh, where's the baseball bat? You know, things like, no, that would be sinning, right? Uh, but anger in of itself is not wrong. And when God has anger, it's fitting and just. He's a just judge. And so it's an outworking of God's love for the marginalized. So if you've been abused, if you've had toxic spiritual leadership that's used the wrath of God to create fear and is used as a manipulation, all these other sort of caricatures, might suggest that God is angry at those who have misused the wrath of God as a, as, a, as a toxic doctrine, to use it to control. And that actually, when you say we believe in the wrath of God, we're saying we agree that, that we're the marginalized, that God is not indifferent to the suffering going on in the world. And so, for this guy here, Miroslav Svoboda, he was a, a, a theologian and he'd grown up in the Santa Claus theology. I, I got some of this theology as well that God is like Santa Claus and God just loves everyone. There's no problem. God doesn't have a problem with anyone. doesn't have a problem with Hitler, with anyone. He just loves everyone. There's no problems. And that we've got the problem. And that's what he believed. But he, but he grew up in Yugoslavia. And what happened to Yugoslavia in the 1990s? The breakup, the war. And hundreds of thousands have died, and there were three million displaced, ethnic cleansing. Uh, there was all sorts of uh, horrendous, I can't say the words here in front of everyone and the kids, but all sorts of horrendous things going on. And was, as, this wasn't just happening out there, this was happening to his villages, to the people he knew. Imagine that war coming to Geraldine, right? And the things happening to the people, and we're coming to church on Sunday, and these people have been killed, and, and horrible things happening to women. And so he said that one of the casualties of that war was his belief, his his disbelief in the wrath of God. This is what he says. He first believed it was a primitive belief about from God from the Dark Ages, uh, but uh, afterwards he said, in the light of such evil, he said he could not imagine God not being angry at the. Abusive woman, I won't use the R word there, mass killings that have been done by humans to his friends. How does God react to such carnage, he says? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion, by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead of affirming the perpetrator's basic human goodness. Wasn't he said God fiercely angry with them? Then he went on to write, though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath. I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Do you follow me? All right? Now, so, but we also understand that God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. For those who have faith in Christ have repented. That for those who have put their trust that the Jesus bore on the cross the full penalty for our sins. And so, yes, those who are the perpetrators of those horrendous crimes in Jesus Christ can have forgiveness and be set free. Corey Tenboom Boom, a uh, book from The Hiding Place, and I have mentioned her before here. Uh, this week I was listening again to one of her sermons or one of the sharing times that she had in a church. And I was gripped with the time that she was sharing about uh, after she'd rescued all the Jewish people, betrayed by a friend, and her and Betsy were in the concentration camp. And she was talking about the experience of being naked in front of the German soldiers who were mocking her and her sister. And her sister was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And the anger and the bitterness she felt as they starved her sister to death. And uh, then after the war, she was sharing about these things. One of the guards, he didn't, he, he, because he didn't know that... Uh, um, Uh, uh, Corey personally. He was there, but she was just one of the inmates. But she'd heard about him, and he'd given his life to Christ just recently. And then he was looking for one of those people who'd been inmates in the prison that he'd been a, a, a horrible monster, and he wanted to go and ask her forgiveness. So when he'd heard that Corey was preaching in one of the churches, he came along and sat at the back. And Corey gave the thing she hadn't recognized him. And then At the end of the thing, he was walking forward. Now, he didn't recognize her because she was just one of thousands of people in these concentration camps that were dying. But she recognized him. He was the one laughing and mocking with all the things. She felt this coldness come across her. And he came up to her and said, I've given my life to Christ. I've repented of my sins. It haunts me day and night. I believe that on the cross, Jesus has paid for all my sins, but I've looked for a person who suffered under my hand and I wanted to ask your forgiveness. And he extended his hand to her. This is the 1950s, just a few years after. And she said she felt this coldness wash over her and all the trauma All the humiliation, all the abuse just washed over. The memories came back like in a rush. And after it was, everyone was watching, and she just, his hand was extended there, and her hands were like this. And after about 30 seconds, after all this, she didn't say out loud, but she said to her mind, God, I cannot forgive this man. I hate him. I hate him with every fiber of my being. I cannot forgive him. And then as she was saying that, but she then said, Lord, give me your forgiveness and your love for him. Give me the love of the cross. And she put the hand out at that point, and she said she felt the power of the Holy Spirit shoot down her and through her arm, and she touched his hand. It was like both of them were struck and were set free from the power of sin. On the cross, we find God's justice. God is not morally indifferent to the concentration camps. If you believe in a God like that, it is a deficient God. But we have a God who is profoundly loving, profoundly merciful. Do you know this God? Do you worship this God? I pray that you do. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that, Lord Jesus, that every, I pray that every person here would know the price that you have paid for them, the substitution, and that, Lord, that on the cross they would be set free. In Jesus' name, amen.